0: You're listening to WRIR-LP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio, with me, Naomi Isaac. This is Race Capital, where we interrogate racial narratives in our space, place, and time of so-called Richmond, Virginia, the falling capital of the Confederacy. The liberation of colonized people necessitates the abolition of policing in prisons. Emancipation calls on us to not simply build a better world in which less people are oppressed, but rather to build a world where the conditions for oppression become an impossibility. One which affirms the lives of all people, one that is divorced from the institutions of ableism, racism, and homophobia, one that disallows the possibility for transmisogyny, transmisogynoir, one that makes deportations obsolete, One that not only changes, but has the infrastructure to be transformative, where there are no borders, binaries or limitations. Abolition requires our solutions to be imaginative and boundless. And abolitionism, as both a movement and a project, has continued to do just that since the colonizing of the Americas. While the movement evolves into ways that are sometimes replications or reforms of state violence, the ever-growing schools within the abolitionist movement lay the foundation for us to build a world that is so much more free than we could ever imagine. This makes abolition more than one final project, rather a constant state of becoming. This week on Race Capital, we skip the reframe to meditate on Blackness, captivity, and freedom through exploring schools of abolitionism, nonprofit or MPIC abolition, and state abolition. First, we hear from Omi Mars, pronounced they, he, in love, about how the freedom of oppressed people and marginalized genders necessitates the abolition of the MPIC or the nonprofit industrial complex as well as their recent resignation from the Abolitionist Teaching Network after surviving repeated organizational harm. Lastly, we hear from New African Prison Solidarity Organizer Coco, pronouns she and they, where they talk briefly about how the movement calls on us to develop the infrastructure for autonomous, sustainable community support. Again, this week, we're going to skip the reframe and get right to it.
1: Hi everyone, my name is Omi Nira Onesia Mars, and you can call me Omi. My pronouns are they, he, or love. Land acknowledgement: I was born and reside on unceded territory of the Muscogee Creek people um, in Georgia. And in terms of the creek, it is important in land acknowledgments. I like to do this to remember an unpleasant history of their role in slavery and a displacement and coercion of not only the Creek to participate in slavery on this land, but the acknowledgement of the slaves who were held in captivity by those who this land was taken from and an attempt towards reconciliation on this land and the struggle for this land to hold both of those histories. So that is my land acknowledgement, honoring both of those histories. And so right now I'm a doctoral student and I'm studying human rights education. I'm in community with other scholar practitioners at the University of San Francisco. I'm also in community with informal educators, whistleblowers, organizers, anarchists, abolitionists, and dark-skinned black marginalized genders. And the work that I do in these communities include mutual aid, political education, some cultural work, and some intercommunal healing. Yes.
0: I just wanted to take some time. You know, this is kind of us defining both freedom and captivity in relation to. Um, our Blackness, our Africanness. So I just wanted Mm -hmm. to take some time to kind of expand the definition of abolition because a lot of people who are drawn into this um, work or drawn into this struggle kind of see the sole purpose of what they're doing, their efforts um, as like making reforms to prisons and policing. But we know Mm -hmm. that the carceral system um, expands way more past like those metal bars. Um, Mm -hmm. And you, um, I know identify as an MPIC um, abolitionist. So can you kind Mm -hmm. of explain from that lens, like what is abolition?
1: So um, I just want to be clear that like expanding the definition of abolition um, has and is currently taking place like, you know, as we speak. And so from the movement to abolish prison and policing to like the quote unquote new abolitionist movement, Uh, to abolish human trafficking and to end global slavery. Um, These are all of the abolitionist movements that are like taking place worldwide. Not, you know, not just here in the States, but there are so many folks who have taken the term or the project of abolition and have applied their own political understandings to that term to kind of move it past its historical meaning um, which that historical meaning, you know, was the abolition of the Atlantic slave trade. And so, abolition as a political project has been taken into the hands of all of these different political actors and many different disciplinary fields to confront oppression and subjugation. So from education to criminal justice to women and gender studies, um, abolition is something something that is deeply, deeply practiced. Um, and so I don't know if you're familiar with Sadia Hartman, but, you know, Sadia Hartman reminds us that, you know, the, the project of abolition remains incomplete. So in terms of the expansion of abolition, in my opinion, has hasn't so much been an expansion it is especially when many like political actors who practice abolition practice like this ahistorical version of it. And this, you know, a, a is preoccupied with like this falsehood that the original project of slavery ended yet the project of slavery just like abolition also remains unfinished. And so, Carceral systems for black Americans and black folks in America didn't just like poof, vanish, you know, when the slave trade acts was signed or the emancipation of proclamation was signed. Descendants of the transatlantic slave trade in this country, you know, deal with what some scholars call the afterlife of slavery, which led many abolitionist organizers and prison abolitionists to kind of like face their attention towards carceral or punitive systems that either mimic or, you know, is an offspring of institutionalized slavery. And so people are drawn to this work because now more than ever, the proof of these institutionalized carceral systems are more evident to the masses. And so all this to say, um, to talk about what abolition is and what abolition is not, is like a tough task. And to also talk about the expansion of abolition is also a tough task. I'm a doctoral student of human rights education, what I mentioned before. And in one of my courses, we began studying like the different schools of thought. Uh, that exists in human rights discourse and so this kind of like inspired me um, to begin working on a model of like different schools of thought for abolitionism because I think now more than ever and I talk about this a lot in my work is so important to be able to distinguish between different types of abolitionisms instead of assuming that everyone who identifies as an abolitionist or with the project of abolitionism want the same things because this is where the tension is we don't all want the same thing but you know every abolition is the buzzword right now and so for instance i hate reformism i think i think there is a bit of utility in like making reforms to prisons and policing but i deeply despise reformism and that's from my own lived experience i i you know my parents were formerly incarcerated my folks are you know quote unquote criminals so i have a deep relationship to the npic but and i've seen what reformism does it doesn't can and cannot do so yeah, this is my relationship to reformism, but I also know that other abolitionists deeply like latch on to reformism. I've been in like so many, not arguments, but like debates and discourse with folks who, with abolitionists who prefer reformism over abolitionists who don't. Um, but to say that abolitionism is not reformism is to kind of erase an entire school of abolitionist thought that is being practiced by so many nonprofits. And organizers and scholar practitioners because for them abolition is reformism you know some prison and police abolitionists advocate for like slow and gradual reform to get them to like total abolition and some prison and police abolitionists do not <laughs> and some are you know somewhere in between there's, there's like this fluidity with it and i mean historically the project of abolitionism cannot be divorced from liberalism and reformism and you know it doesn't even take deep study to know that Abolitionism in the in the you know United so-called United States was deeply tied to white moral perimeters, you know, of in religious liberalism, and so again to say that you know abolitionism is not reform is like historically alive, but however it is our duty to stop settling with and being in negotiation with the state, and the white moral perimeters of justice, and I don't believe that takes reformism to accomplish but so many other prisoner police abolitionists do. And I've seen this in the nonprofits I work with. I've spoken to co-directors who you know, hold this belief. And there's, there's always this huge divide with that belief. And so abolition has always been about the power of narrative and the power of epistemology. And basically for those listening, what epistemology means is like the th- philosophical study of the validity of knowledge. And so since the beginning of the abolitionist movement in this country, valid knowledge systems on subjugation, on humanness, and on belonging has always stemmed from either those being subjugated, whose narratives, you know, fit closely aligned with Western religion and whiteness, or from white actors and their interpretation of freedom and emancipation. And in my opinion, this is happening all over again in the modern abolitionist movement to abolish prisons and policing this is where we find ourselves, you know, our epistemologies and the definition of abolition that belongs to the, you know, nonprofit industrial complex still deeply aligns with white moral parameters of what justice looks like. And that's deeply frustrating for not just me, but for other folks who are working in nonprofits and for other folks whose vision of abolition look completely different from those who, those, the actors whose vision kind of align with the state or align with, you know, white morality or, or white moral perimeters. And so, you know, how. but however, from my personal and intercommunal experiences of being detached from academia in the nonprofit industrial complex, the project of abolition is being pushed towards like this deeper reflection of our relationship to the state and what institutions and activists function either for the state or as an arm of the state. And so even redefining like what the state is, which is not just local government and federal government, but Understanding that the state can also mean career activists, the state can also mean nonprofits, the state can also mean um, foundation funding, the state can also mean academics, and so all of this leads us to the nonprofit industrial complex and how the NPIC has taken abolition by like this chokehold, and it won't let it go, you know, (laughs) and we're not able to move deeply beyond seeing, being able to imagine outside of the state what abolition, what prison abolition and the abolition of the police state could look like. Yeah, that was right. a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it was right on time and
0: it was a delivery that we needed because I think it's so important that you correct the idea that abolition has always been in practice a revolutionary school of thought, right? Like, Like you're talking about since the beginning that liberalization has been happening. And I think it's important that you call us into the moment now, not to try to deny that history but to reflect on that relationship between the state. Um, I think that's like so, so important. And you kind of already um, defined the MPIC for the listeners, but is there anything else you wanna add that you think is just important to understanding um, this specific type of reform?
1: Yeah, so (laughs) I love that you call the MPIC like a specific type of reform because that's what it is. And and so many times reformism is a counterinsurgent practice of the state. Um, And so basically what the MPIC stands for is the nonprofit industrial complex. And there's an organization called Insight that published this book titled The Revolution Will Not Be Funded. And in this book, they're basically like confronting the NPIC from many different perspectives and discussing the history of nonprofits, the history of foundation funding and this impact on social movements. Insight brilliantly defines the NPIC as a relationship between the state, um, the owning classes, foundations, nonprofit and NGO social service. And, and social organizations that result in the surveillance, control, and derailment of you know everyday management of, of political movements. And so the MPIC is used to manage dissent. It's used to privatize, privatize social movements. It's used to promote careerism, um, and it, it's used to encourage the structuring of our social movements in these capitalist modes. And so the way these you know the way our movements are structured and built to confront oppression and subjugation functions like the master's master's tools in the word, words of Audre Lorde. And so basically what the MPIC functions as, as I said earlier, is like this counterinsurgent project of the state. And the state knows that we want liberation, the state knows that we want freedom, and the state knows that they can't completely erase that desire. So, so the MPIC is here to manage that desire. It's, it's here, it's the MPIC is like this middleman between the state and the and the people, the masses, you know, the sense. <laughs> But the NPIC is nothing new. You know, this term may be a new phenomenon, but the practice isn't. And the state has been at this for decades, you know, throwing money at issues because what the state does know is that mutual aid is a very radical practice, for instance, that has sustained social movements. And so what they do is co-opt mutual aid practice by using the NPIC to provide grants. And this and grant processes, processes always promote surveillance and hierarchy, no matter what what organization they're coming from no matter the needs they may meet, they still promote surveillance, they still promote hierarchy, they still promote capitalism. And so, you know, that's what the NPIC is, you know, to sum it all up. And what it's concerned with is expansion. The NPIC has to expand, um, because the SIT is expanding, you know, as we saw last summer, we almost, you know, we basically had a mini little civil war going on, you know, between the folks in the state. And then boom, you know, up, up pop these nonprofits that are being funded by foundations, funded by the state. So this is how they're managing the scent. They know the sin is going to keep happening. And so they're going to have to keep building these nonprofits. They're going to have to keep using career activists. And this is what we're confronting with. And it's deeply, deeply frustrating and sad for those of us who, who want total liberation, who want total abolition, or who don't want to be in negotiation with the state.
0: Yeah. And can you talk a little bit deeper about like how violent that co-optation is by the npic because i feel like sometimes people like you're saying they they think that the good outweighs the harm that we're talking about because it feels more abstract can you kind of define why why that is such an issue what obstacles is the npic truly posing to liberation to total liberation
1: mm. Mm. what i've witnessed and the main obstacle that i see when i observe the npic as yes, this like, i call it the beast i call the pic the npic Or it's for the folks listening, the prison industrial complex, the nonprofit industrial complex, the academic industrial complex, military, all of these complexes, I call them all these because that's how they function. Like they just eat up everything that we want. One of the main obstacles that the NPIC poses to those of us who want total abolition and total liberation is that the NPIC takes social movements and they make sure that those social movements answer to folks who are an arm of the state. And so what I've seen in my personal work you know, in nonprofits is that these, the work does not answer to the people. The work does not answer to the most marginalized to so those on the margins. It, acts, it answers to those in between, like those, I don't know what the words I'm looking for, but like folks who serve as intermediaries between the state and the people. And this is, these are what social movements answer to. So like, you know, to state again, career activists, those who have built a career off of their activism work, and who now receive money from the state. Um, non-profit, these social movements are answering to a board of academics, a board of those deeply in alliance with the state. And so that right there is the number one obstacle. Like the movement is no longer, when nonprofits take social movements, they're no longer answering to us. They're not answering to our needs. They're not answering to the most marginalized. They're answering to folks who are deemed as experts. And these experts are not experts of the streets. They're, you know, they're not experts of deep, true, ballot epistemologies they, they become experts of epistemologies backed by whiteness backed by capitalism or neoliberalism and this is that's a problem with the NPIC so it's like no matter how much material needs are being met within the NPIC which when we think about it when we take time when we just step back because I know people say that all the time you know nonprofits they have utility they're meeting our needs and then when you kind of step back and you're like and, and kind of actually really look at that because you know, i worked at some nonprofits. I did some data analysis on the needs we were meeting with grants and I'm like, actually we're actually giving to like middle-class people. <laughs> we're giving to upper middle-class people who's overseeing this grant process, academics in middle-class people. It's like, oh my God, so whose needs are being met and why do we keep using this as an excuse? I'm, I'm a person who prioritizes mutual aid. I believe that mutual aid is the blueprint for all revolutionary potential. But what these nonprofits are is doing is not mutual aid. It's not mutual aid. It's not bottom up. It's not decentralized. It's not people focused. And this is, this is a threat to actual mutual aid practice that can lead us towards like liberation that can lead us a step closer. And the truth is, I don't think we're getting a step closer. I think we keep going in circles. And there's this illusion with the NPIC that we're inching closer and closer and closer reform after reform, but it's actually just like this big circle. It's like, we keep going in this huge circle and I'm like, aren't we tired of this? (laughs) Or like year after year nonprofit after nonprofit grant after grant, aren't we tired of going in circles? Yeah, and I think really it's the
0: data analysis for me. Like if folks start looking at these numbers if you worked at a nonprofit, I remember um, that was my reason a couple of years ago to to leave um, the nonprofits I was working at when I started to look at the actual like, okay, we out here canvassing folks, asking folks for money let me see this breakdown. You start to look at the number, you realize folks' salaries are getting met before
1: yeah. any money
0: is being distributed to the people who need it most. And um, I think that people don't aren't able and privy to the numbers and that data um, enough to understand like how truly disturbing it is, um, and really like then start to understand like why we are like no, like we gotta we gotta refuse participation. We have to begin to refuse participation in this rather than trying to just work ourselves out of a job.
1: Yeah, I I deeply agree with that, and that's something that I mean when I left the NPIC, when I left the nonprofit, the the latest, um, the most recent nonprofit that had harmed me, I actually had to sit back and strategize about how we get my needs met because I was a salary, I was making a salary, you know, and I there were other people around me making salary, and I was just like, if I if I refuse this job and I leave this, you know, it's it's like coercion. We're stuck in this relationship to the NPIC we're stuck in, in, in this relationship to nonprofits as organizers, as um, radicals. And so when I was trying to leave, I'm sitting here thinking, okay, I need a strategy to get my needs met because if I leave and refuse to participate in this system, then that leaves me out of a job that leaves me without the tools necessary to either. And, and that's, the, that's a whole nother conversation because the nonprofit have, has taken our tools, the tools that we use to be in community with others and they have monopolized on those tools. So leaving leaving the MPIC was also leaving like this community that I made. Like, you know, I was radicalizing folks who were members of the nonprofit that I worked for. And so I was losing all of that. But at some point, like the trauma from the desirability politics, the trauma from my relationship to the state through the, my, the nonprofit that I worked for, relationship to the state was so psychologically harmful for me that I had to ask myself, okay do i do i want material security or do i want like emotional and mental security and i chose the latter and i'm still trying to find a way to get my needs met but i honestly felt so free once i left my job and refused to sign the nda you know i was like i'm going to tell my story <laughs> and you know there was i was even threatened you know and i'm just like do what you have to do but people are going to know And, you know, I don't see myself as a martyr or anything. I just see myself as someone who is deeply frustrated and deeply exhausted. I'm tired. I'm so, so tired. (laughs) And I know I'm not the only one tired. I do want to
0: take some time to speak on the specific ways that the MPIC does inflict violence on non-men and non-white folks.
1: Yes, 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 and I, mean, I am in academia still, so I am in a doctoral program, and there is discussion of the MPIC. And usually when I hear other academics and other scholar practitioners talk about the nonprofit industrial complex, there's never really this conversation on the actual psychological and mental harm done to Black marginalized genders, to BIPOC folks, and how they're often disposed of. And so in my, com- in my conversation in academia on the MPIC, it's usually always the the topic of the conversation is always about the state or neoliberalism or um, management of dissent. But I'm like, but no one is actually talking about how desirability politics, which can range from fat phobia, transphobia, homophobia, classism, um, colorism. No one talks about how all these isms are stable foundations of carcerality. And so when we talk about abolishing the NPIC, there's this entire, Discourse that is not happening on how folks like the most marginalized non-men and non-white folks are deep are being disposed of story after story. When I came out about my story on my Instagram, I, I couldn't even keep up with my inbox because there were like so I had so many DMs for folks who from non-men and non-white folks who were involved in the NPIC, who were just like, I witnessed the same thing. I witnessed the same thing, I witnessed the same thing, I was exposed of, I was exercising the NDA. Um, they, you know, I was mentally and psychologically harmed, and I'm just like, but you know, there's there's not a national conversation happening on this is because it's so hard to step away from the community that you thought was your political home, and for that for that home to have abused you or harmed you in a way that you can't even like speak on it, and then folks again, folks are also being coerced to signing NDAs, and I, I I know so many people that have signed NDAs that literally cannot speak out. That literally cannot say anything that will, you know, that will be, they will be sued if they said something, you know, nonprofits use the master's tools. There we go again. And so speaking on the harm that dark skin marginalized folks face or BIPOC folks face um, or the most marginalized face in the nonprofit industrial complex, what I can say about that harm and that, that abuse is that I've seen that firsthand. And it's almost this weird relationship to not wanting to let go of your material needs. And that's the number one reason why so many folks, so many organizers, so many folks being harmed, so many non-men being harmed don't leave is because we are coerced into a relationship with our, with our harm doers and our abuser, which is the NPIC, because we need our material needs met and because they know that we need our material needs met. And if we do leave, they know we're going to sign an NDA for 2000 5000 however much it is, because we need our material needs met. And so we're coerced into abusive relationships because we need our needs met. And this is why any, any movement, any, any abolitionist movement that does not prioritize mutual aid, that does not prioritize material conditions, it's not abolitionist. It's not abolitionists. It's not abolitionists. We, we're talking about confronting carceral systems. And these carceral systems are literally in relationship with us. This is a relationship. And it's an abusive one. And we can't just tell people to leave. You know, it's cute to read a book talking about the NPIC, talking about, you know, it's cute to like read and study the language and study the theory. But the truth is, you know, we can't just escape the way that we want to. It has to be strategic. We have to shift the narrative, which is what I'm working and organizing to do right now, like organizing a meeting, a confidential meeting between folks who have been harmed or abused by nonprofits that they work for so that we can begin telling our stories stories, whether that's anonymously, whether folks want to use their names, whether folks want to call out the nonprofit that warned them. I think there has to be a major shift in narrative. There
0: has to be a huge shift in narrative. And that is such important work, especially as we see all these young folks who are elevating into the struggle and they're searching for opportunities. And we see them, you know, I watch it in real time folks getting filtered into this pipeline. I mean, this is a huge reason why I dropped out, right? Is because studying political science, they want to filter everyone into nonprofits or the or the state yep. somehow. And, yep. you know, this is just not a way to get free, but it, it's like you're saying presents itself sometimes as one of the only opportunities to make sure that your needs and the needs of your family often um, are met materially. And yep. I just wanted to take some time if you're comfortable. I know that a couple of folks who are listening may not know the situation that you're referencing. So I didn't know if you wanted to um talk a little bit more about like your recent transition um out of the MPIC.
1: Oh absolutely. I I am definitely open to talking about that because I think sharing I mean you never know what will happen when you share your story. I know that sounds so cheesy, but I found inspiration in being able to lead by listening to other people's stories. So I don't mind sharing mine. So I worked for the Abolitionist Teaching Network and the Abolitionist Teaching Network was founded in July 2020 after the George George Floyd uprisings. And what I, what was really attractive to me about the Abolitionist Teaching Network is because I'm a scholar of education, I, I, you know, I organized a critical resistance. I organized a Southerners Underground the ground in the past. I, I knew about abolition, but I had never really talked to anyone closely or organized around abolition and education. I'm like, whoa, like, okay, we're bringing abolition to education. This is dope, like let's do this because schools are sites of of carcerality. Schools are sites of of imprisonment for a lot of students, for a lot of marginalized students. And so this was really exciting to begin working with the Abolition Teaching Network. But what I quickly came to realize from the structuring of the board, from the structuring of the organization as a whole, that one, desirability politics played a huge role in how ATN function as an organization. From our um, from our talks, we we did panels. From every single panel that we did, a lot of the folks that I and I used to organize the panels. So I was hired as a communications and outreach manager in April of 2021. But I started contracting as a communications manager. But what I've noticed with my work in my work with ATN is that this was literally an arm of academia. There were two academics that began that co-founded the nonprofit, and the entire board, minus just one person who was a co-founder's wife, were all academics. And I, that, and I didn't realize at the time that I was hired that that would be a problem for me. But I realized once, <laughs> God, I'm laughing because it's just the more I think about it, the more ridiculous it seems that you know. A group of academics would you know create this movement you know abolition and education but not go to those who needed to be the leaders of the movement to make them the leaders like they were so preoccupied with being the leaders they wanted to be on the board they wanted to be the face um but yes i worked for the abolitionist teaching network i was communications and outreach manager and i was the victim of organizational harm and what that organizational harm looked like was a devaluation of my skills in labor as a um, dark-skinned marginalized gender there were so many times where the work that I was asked to do was, was um, mischaracterized as you know easy work. And so there were so many times I would go to my supervisors about my capacity. I'm like, whoa, I'm the only person doing doing communications and outreach. I would like an intern or I would like an assistant or I would like some sort of help. And what, what would be told back to me is, oh, all you're doing is this. And that, that can't be that hard. It has to be easy. And I would ask myself, would they tell this to a white woman? Like, they're literally devaluing my labor. They're devaluing my skills, my abilities. That, that was like the first strike for me. The second strike was an incident that I had with one of the co-founders, who I am going to name, because she's a white liberal woman. And she has no business being um, in having that much power in an abolitionist organization that's based in Black feminism and the Black radical tradition. Her name is Breneline Tussault, and she works at the um, Northern Kentucky University and I faced so many microaggressions from this white woman. Like she would tell me, one time she told me like there's a black woman inside inside of me or something like that. And I'm just sitting here like, I cannot believe that this is being told to me by someone who claims to be an abolitionist. Like I'm, I was just really, at that point, at that point when I started facing the microaggressions from this white woman was the point that I was like, okay, this has to stop. But at, But when I wanted to speak up, I realized that there was so much power I was I, I was in a position where I actually had no power within the organization and so I literally had a fear of speaking up, which I was later blamed for. When I came out about the organizational harm, I was blamed for not speaking up in an efficient way. And my response was power affects communication and I literally had a fear of speaking up because I thought I would lose my job because I thought I would you know be retaliated against. I, I was literally honest about this. I was like I'm, I was scared of retaliation. But I was speaking with someone in the organization who was, um, who was not black, who was a white passing person of color, who took, who took it upon themselves to help me navigate the situation, who was getting a higher salary than I was, who was priming, being primed to be executive director. And they were helping me move through the situation. But I quickly came and realized that I don't think this person, as much as I appreciate them wanting to stand up for me, I don't think they're willing to lose their job. <laughs> I don't think they're willing to speak out the way that I'm speaking out. The change that I was seeking within an organization, the change was being co-opted. Like every time I would use words to describe my experience, the leaders would co-opt my experience or those words or interpret it in their own ways to either, you know, combat what I was saying or to either push for a different type of change, something that was a little less radical, something that was a little less confronting of power Mm -hmm. because no one wanted to lose their power. No one wanted to lose their power. And so on top of my work being devalued, on top of facing microaggressions from this white woman, there were also types of the organization did not mentally and emotionally protect its workers. At one point, we were attacked by Fox News. You know, we were we're in education. There's a huge debate going on with critical race theory. We had a huge conference that I organized. And right after the conference, we became like the front news of Fox. We were front page for about two to three days. And that's because Fox found, so we, the Abolitions Teaching Network produced um, this social emotional guide for learning. And it was this abolition social emotional guide for educators to teach their students. The Department of Education cited this guide in one of their handbooks that they release annually. Fox News found out that the Department of Education, um, you know, cited the Abolitions Teaching Network and they came for us. I'm talking about death threats. I'm talking about, like, just the the most emails on top of emails on top of emails and so after this all of this happened I was literally asked to monitor our social medias there was literally no quite like no just, yeah oh my god so I did that I monitored the social medias and at one point it was actually really weird because this also became like a laughing stock. like it became humorous at some point and so I interjected in the the chat at one point the our you know team chat to say hey I know that that we're you know some folks find humor in times like this but this is actually psychologically taxing for me like someone had found my Google Voice number and texted me a very disturbing message and I traced I had a friend who's like really great with security trace a message back to some white man living in Pennsylvania but I got a very disturbing death threat and I reported that and nothing was done about it that's it they put it in the Google folder they screenshot it and they told us they were getting the cops involved which was also a conversation of power because we did, yeah it was <laughs> so the abolitionist teaching abolitionist teaching network that it getting the cops involved as the solution like they the leaders did not even ask the team how they felt about this the leader it was just and they would do that all the time so when i was hired i was told that this was an anti-capitalist and non-hierarchical organization that could be far from true absolutely far from true every major decision that was made was made by the two co-founders who weren't even the executive directors every decision that was made, I was a manager, I was in a managerial position. And then after I found out that someone was getting paid almost 30,000 more than me for being a director, I was I was livid. I was pissed. I asked to renegotiate my contract to either get a higher pay or to take all of these because I had the I did not have the capacity to do communications work, outreach work in digital media. So I, you know, spoke with someone that I trusted who looked over my contract and they you know, advised me to renegotiate my contract, that was reframed as me asking for higher pay. And what was told to me by one of the co-founders was, oh, we're not gonna give you higher pay because we don't wanna normalize giving people higher pay four months after we hired them. So every single time I tried to advocate for myself, I was it was made to seem like I was just asking for the most. After the Fox News situation happened, I advocated for a healing circle. That was not honored. That was not honored stuck in this relationship with this organization and it took me a while to realize that wait a minute this is actually harmful and when harm happens over and over again it becomes abuse and so at this point from the colorism and i you know i don't want to get into that because that that will take a whole nother hour to to describe the colorism the colorism that happened within ATN. but from colorism to threats from the board yes i was coerced to agree with the co-founder after an incident happened because one of the board members had to call me after I you know, was served a reverence package to either leave the organization or to make sure that my values aligned with the organization after calling the white woman out on her colorism. In other words, I was basically told that I was too radical and I was asked to sign a reverence package of $5,000 or basically to get my um, shit together. Sorry for those who listen, either you don't get my shit together or sign a reverence package. So all of this coercion, all of this play on power, the lack of communication the devaluation of my skills in labor, the colorism, the internalized anti-blackness, the white, the prioritization of whiteness and white feelings was happening in this organization. And I was deeply confused because other members of the board would tell me, oh, and the person who was forming me, the person I named, Brandilyn, would be like, oh, that's just Brandilyn. That's just, you know, you learn to get used to Brandilyn. I'm like, well, I'm not getting used to that. That is not okay. I will not get used to being treated like that. And so boom. I, I resigned, and then a day after resigning, I was terminated via email and asked to sign the NDA. I gave the Abolitionist Teaching Network one more chance to repair the home that they caused me. I refused to sign the NDA, and then I was terminated. And then I was sent an official termination letter. And then I went public with my story. And it's still ongoing. It's still an ongoing battle to, to you know, try to hold them accountable and... Right now, it's not looking like that is something that's going to happen. And that deeply saddened me because I believe in this organization. When I was hired, I believed in this mission. I believed in this value. I believed in the co-founders. And now here I am almost, you know, a year later and not working for the organization. Harmed. exercising asked to sign an MBA so that I wouldn't be able to talk about this. But that's not who I am. And, you know, this is... I understand why people sign the It's because people, again, people need their material needs met, but I communicated that. I have comrades. I have a community that believes in me, and I'm going to get my needs met, and I'm not going to sign this NDA. Ashe, and I
0: thank you for telling your story because if folks are listening, this is not, like, an anom- anomaly. This is stuff that happens, this experience. People are going home each day with trauma, again, just for the sole fact that there's no – they have no, there's no infrastructure outside of this institution for them that can support their needs. And, and um, yeah, so I just really thank you for bringing this discussion, um, for helping carry this discussion, because this is a gap that we need to um, be focused on. I And um, I appreciate the people that are working to build up that infrastructure so that we can get people's material conditions met. Uh, exactly. So that yep. folks can leave these places because, um, is really giving anti-revolutionary. And I cannot believe they called the
1: cops. I cannot believe they're going to call the cops. And I, yeah, the entire team was shook. We were just like, why didn't anyone talk to, why was there no team decision on this? You know, I'm being told that I work for a non-hierarchical organization and then there's no infrastructure for collective decisions. Like we made a decision to call the cops and I just, I remember my heart sunk. I remember my heart sunk. And, and, and that's when I realized that this was more about a performance that they're building out of this organization. They were more concerned with, the, with performing abolitionism than they were about you know, being, being responsible to abolitionism on an interpersonal level, on an intercommunal level. And that's how you pick these people out. Their politics may sound cute. What's the point of our politics if we're not practicing, practicing them interpersonally? if we're not practicing them on an organizational level, which is, it was also very surprising that we didn't even practice this on an organizational level. We were, we're not even practicing abolition on an organizational level. We're just talking. We're just talking. And that, that shit is sad. Just glad that like you
0: can be out of that space, divorced from that space that is truly draining your energy because I, I really feel and understand. And so I wanted to uh, give you the opportunity or can you tell folks rather Uh, where they can go if they want to support you as you are um, trying to continue to support yourself?
1: Absolutely. Um, So right now I am on Medium. I am a writer. I write a lot. I admittedly write better than I speak. (laughs) And you can find me on Medium at D-E-C-O-L-A-N-I-Z-A. That's Decolonizer. And you can also find me on Instagram there. I do a lot of my writing there. Um, And... If you would like to keep up with my work of uh, refusing the NPIC, um, if you follow those two accounts um, and follow my writings, I will, be, I will also be organizing meetings for folks who have been harmed and abused by the MPIC.
0: Omi is raising funds to support their living conditions and therapy after resigning from the abolitionist teaching network due to repeated organizational harm. You can visit bit.ly slash refusing the NPIC, capital R, capital T, capital N, to support Omi now.
2: Peace, peace. Um, My name is Coco. Um, pronouns is she and they. Um, I am uh, located on um, occupied southern Pomo territory and um, the type of work that I do is more specific to prisoner solidarity work. I engage with several different political prisoners across the country and more specifically we just typically engage around you know uh, topics of um, abolition, um, ways that we can support our political prisoners that Um, If we, you know, obviously, if we were not involved, um, there would be a lot of people who, you know, would not be known, um, you know, suffering within these cages and under these conditions. So that's a little bit about the work that I do. Um, I do engage with a lot of, um, more specifically with a lot of new African political prisoners across the country. Um, And with that work is also like thinking about, you know, formations and, and building within the new African nation, um, as people who are of ne- New African descent, uh, what really brings me into this work is, um, you know, when when I went to college, um, I went back um, when I was about 26 years old. Um, I went to school it was a predominantly black college. It was um, in New York. It's called Niagara College. And um, you know, when I when I got into school, um, I was given an opportunity to learn um, a lot more about the history. Um, And so, you know, a lot of like the deans and the professors in the English department really, um, they schooled me a little bit into thinking a little bit deeper into what I was reading. And so, you know, they wanted me to like really grasp um, the message that was being taught um, in a lot of our our readings and stuff like that. And so, you know, I got involved um, on campus around student activism um, and thinking about how, you know. Um, our money was being spent or actually not being spent for students and the conditions that we were experiencing, considering we were the Black college of the the city university. And so um, with that, I kind of was able to get into a program throughout the city university where I was able to uh, create my own degree and I decided to do community organizing. And so with that, um, I had to um, engage in a lot more classes that were geared toward thinking about social change. And um, with that became, you know, I became more involved um, across campuses on, you know, student activism, walkouts, um, rallies that we would host. Um, And and then that kind of propelled me into, you know, um, off-campus work, um, more specifically to like protests um, at the time when, you know, Eric Garner and Mike Brown were murdered by the police. And um, with that work, it kind of, you know, deepen my understanding of, you know, my own personal um, experience within, you know, this country and, and why I experienced the things that I experienced as in my youth in regards to policing, um, incarceration. Um, and so I was actually given a lot of opportunities to really think about, you know, what that meant. Um, and so that kind of propelled me into, you know, the work early on. And now that I have my child, I have a son, you know, and over the years I had a child and now I'm kind of more focused on how do we, um, how do we liberate ourselves um, from captivity, um, more specifically through prisons, um, but also through, you know, our current economic and social conditions um, that keep us in captivity um, on a daily basis and the constant control um, that we see within our, our communities.
0: Mm. Thank you for sharing that and something that I know uh, uh, an identity that you will invoke in this conversation often is going to be the the phrase New African. Um, can you maybe just briefly define what you mean by that for Black folks who may be listening to this who haven't been um, exposed to that type of uh, reclaiming of uh, identity?
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, although I, I probably would not do as much justice to the history of the New African nation. Um, my identity as a conscious new African um, really does mean that I consciously think about what that means to be um, a person of colonized and enslaved. Um, you know, my, my ancestors were colonized and enslaved and, you know, I'm constantly thinking about what that means in regards to my own freedom. And, um, and so with the new African, you know, and thinking about nation building, I think that there's a little bit of a deeper conversation um, we, are, we are people that were brought here, um, you know, obviously through the Atlantic slave trade and, um, and throughout the diaspora, you know, we, we often hear a lot about the diaspora of Pan-Africanism. And so with being a new African means that, you know, we are people that were captive here um, in, this, in this territory. Um, and we created, a, we, we are now a u- more unique identity because of that, you know, because of the conditions that we've experienced through, throughout the history here. Um, through enslavement um, and then apartheid um, with uh, Jim Crow and, you know, the South and, you know, the continued um, neocolonial efforts to enslave and um, keep us in captivity. So I think, you know, you know, thinking about new African identity, it, it, you know, you first think about, you know, how do we free the land um, and how do we live, you know, in a self-determined sovereign um, way and through, you know, thinking about as well as, you um, reparations and what that means.
0: Mm, Thank you for that. This episode, we're thinking deeply about abolition, specifically in terms of understanding captivity and understanding or expanding what it means to be free. And so in your own words, based on your involvement in the struggle, and you know, the, the knowledge that you have, uh, through this experience, um, what would you say is, like the, is the mandate for New African or Black people during these times and during this particular stage of the struggle?
2: You know, for us you know, and our people, I think you know, what's, what's really important is if, if we're really thinking about um, what, what revolutionary means or what a revolution or liberation um, really means, I think we have to really identify you know, our ties to um, the white supremacist state and capitalism, and you know, to be more specific, I think you know, um, during these times we're living living in a time where there's heightened surveillance, there's heightened uh, incarceration, um, there's a, a heightened level of um, repression that we're experiencing, and we have to be responsible for how we engage with that. And I think that that's like the most important part to me. What we do on a daily basis, like how we interact um, within, you know, our environments, is really important. And you know, there's going to be a lot of differences between us and like how we interact with our environments, and you know, how we challenge that. Um, but you know, we definitely have to take a look at self and think about how you know these contradictions um, keep us away from our own freedom. And a lot of that, you know, those contradictions. Um, And when I say start with self, it really is like, you know, how we spend our money, you know, how we um, develop programs to educate our people, um, you know, how we uh, engage with policing on a daily basis in our neighborhoods. And so sometimes, you know, there's going to be a lot of people who continuously engage in this because they, you know, they feel like, you know, they don't have any choices, you know, they have to keep a roof over their head. Um, You know, people don't have a choice, they have to put their children in in these and also indoctrinate um, our children and, you know, and we can even go into our own healthcare and how we engage in our own health. Um, And I think that, you know, building and creating that infrastructure is is definitely an important part um, as, um, you know, as part of the struggle, you know, towards self-determination and liberation. And I think right now in this time, I think that we are um, at a stage of of planning um, for that. I think where, I don't don't know, maybe we do have a foundation. I don't think we um, are at the building stage. Um, I think that we have been agitating, um, but we need to start educating as well. And I think before we can organize, um, we have to get our political line um, a little bit more in place um, and understand what it's going to really take Um, to be liberated, and that means commitment, um, that means sacrifice, um, and it's going to mean that we're going to not have as much (laughs) luxuries and comforts um, that we're used to, and I think that, you know, for me, um, you know, I practice that every day, and nobody's perfect, but I do think that we have to consciously make that effort to do so um, in order for us to actually be free.
0: Mm, And what you're getting out, especially with the comfort as black or new African folks who live in the imperial core, you know, who live on the land um, uh, that's being occupied by like the biggest super villain ever to walk the the face of the earth. You know, it's so important that we definitely challenge um, the comfort that we get that comes at the uh, expense of other African folks um, or that like enhances or helps uphold um, the police state globally and, and the empire's reach globally. So I think like that's definitely an important thing to note. So we were talking about contradictions and I wanted to see if you could expand on or maybe speak to some of the ways you've seen the movement in recent um history act in ways that are counter revolutionary. Um and just talk a little bit more about these contradictions that exist within our current um or the current abolitionists in so-called Black Lives Matter movements.
2: Yeah, I mean um you know I it goes back down to, again, like, you know, what we do on a daily basis, um, is there's going to be a lot of times where, you know, we're reactionary to, um, a lot of the repression and a lot of the things that, you know, this country has, um, the so-called country has, you know, done not just domestically, but globally, right? And so a lot of times when we see, um, the terrorizing, of black and brown people, um, and more specifically, African and indigenous people throughout this, um, this entire globe, I think that, you know, a lot that instilled a lot of fear in people. And, you know, we can go back down to history, and we can really like, you know, and study history and understand that our so called freedom was built based off of our compliance, right? So they they require us to be compliant in order for us to have this so-called citizenship and freedom. And so like, you know, there's these ideas of like, you know, being free and having the rights to do A, B, and C, but we see every day that we have no rights, right? The only thing that we're entitled to is so-called freedom under the guise of like, you know, compliance, right? Like, if we do not comply with the dominant culture, the dominant neocolonial authority, we are um, consistently policed, um, incarcerated, and, and they instill a lot of fear in our, in, in our people um, so that we comply. And that means through you know, our you know, paying taxes, um, whether it's through um, you know, doing the so-called right thing. And a lot of these laws um, have been created Based on the, the 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 only tools that we've had to survive, um, and so most of the times most people are incarcerated because you know, they were just trying to survive, right? And we've you know just been reacting to that. And so when I think about how we're countering our revolution, right? How we, how someone is being counter revolutionary, um, a lot of times it, it is those folks who are just reacting to their own circumstances. Um, so a lot of times you know um, people. And you know, I am not above this in, in, in these statements, but you know, sometimes we have no choice, but we have to set aside these ideas of being free so that we can take care of our children, so that we can put, put a roof over our head. And a lot of times that you know, we don't have the ability to think about sacrificing you know, for the common you know, collective goal. And so I think you know, um, being counter-revolutionary can come in many different forms, um, through patriarchy, um, you know, we see that in movements. We see um, a lot of times even men um, utilizing, you know, or or vanguarding spaces because you know uh, somebody did not give them what they wanted, where stroke their ego, right? And that's not just men. Um, there's a lot of people who have too many egos. Um, I think within these movements, but but also to even um, get into the the second question that you had. Um, about these contradictions that exist within the abolitionist and um, Black Lives Matter movements, um, when thinking about even specifically abolitionists, you know, abolition means, you know, just to destroy, right? To destruct, um, to dismantle. And I think, you know, for me, if I was to call myself an abolitionist, um, I would not think about integration. I would not think about how um, I could contribute to the system. Um, by creating better laws, right? Or um, having better people in office and politicians and, and promoting that type, of, that type of line. I think that okay. you know a lot of times there's people who, who are more focused on uh, reforms and are integrationist reformists um, even though they, they call themselves abolitionists. And so I think like if I was to think about abolition, I'm like, okay, well, it's destroy these prisons and, dis- and dismantle these police. Um, and and these laws, right, and this constitution that does not serve our people. Um, it's not protecting these things or engaging with these things or, you know, utilizing these things in a temporary space, because if we never stop utilizing those things, then are we ever going to stop utilizing those things and depending on those things as well. Um, and that also goes into that, that idea of compliance, like we're constantly seeking more laws and rules so that we can be more <laughs> compliant um, in the system. And, you know, I just think that's, you know, counter revolutionary on its own. And so when I look at like BLM, and I look at the foundation, and I think about the movement, you know, the foundation itself um, is is alone, like, you know, I have, I don't really have many uh, positive things um, to say about the foundation. <laughs> um, uh, I just think that, you know, we have to really, like, really have some sense of like, what is actually going on Um, and that and that goes down to like more of a capitalist um, perspective of like you know they are seeking you know funding and who they're seeking funding from I think those contradictions um, we learned that with the Black Panther Party right they had a lot of contradictions and who they were receiving money from and I think that's one challenge that I would say to anybody is like where are you getting your money from you know and (laughs) by taking money from these capitalists, are we even challenging the system? I don't, you know, I don't don't understand it, right? And like I said, like, I know that there's some fine lines between like um, what we do to survive, but I also think, you know, in my own teachings, um, how we get our money creatively and think about how we, you know, um, raise money, I think is important. And so like Black Lives Matter as a movement, I mean, yeah, it started a greater conversation, but that's that's the part of the agitation that I was talking about. Now it's time to really think about political edu- education and how we politically um, educate ourselves to one, understand our conditions, understand the historical connections to the contemporary connections of you know, our environments and why they exist how they exist and what we're going to do to counter those contradictions. And so again, it's going to take that sacrifice. Um, it's going to take you know a lot of commitment um, to really challenging how we you know interact and engage, so that we do not become like the Black Lives Matter Foundation, who is now a corrupt foundation. I mean, they're corrupt. They're corrupted, right? And so they are corrupt. And you know, it, it may not be popular opinion, but mostly popular opinion is probably the liberal opinion, and that's just not something that I'm really interested in. Um, engaging with Um, but i am interested in thinking not just by you know thinking of having a critique on movement i think it's important that we are critical we're you know self-critical and critical of our movements and our spaces that we're in but i think we have to be productive with that i think we have to reimagine what our our movement spaces look like we have to reimagine what formations look like Um, we have to reimagine um the hierarchy that exists within movements, and um, and challenge the authoritative uh, nature within ourselves, right? Because we come from an authoritative uh, fascist, you know, state. And so, like, if if that's the case, like, we have to really challenge within ourselves how we engage with each other and and contribute to the collective needs of the movements that we're in.
0: It's also a lack of vocabulary like we don't have the same definition for liberation and so when it comes to new africans right the rally cries free the land and um that's like an all-encompassing vision for liberation right the autonomy to um shape what your relationship to the land and what you do on that land and what you do with your body and uh, you know how people interact um in a space And so I kind of wanted to know if you could speak a little bit more about that uh, relationship and talk about the ways that the state
2: does impose um, captivity on us through uh, land. I mean, I mean, historically, uh, land has always equaled power. Right. And so um, I, you know, if you look at, you know, uh, the lands within, you know, the, the, the period of enslavement. Right. Um, if you look at lands within the imperial um, agenda, right? Everyone is constantly, um, even, you know, to this day of like personal property and land ownership, right, like, you know, individual property ownership and, you know, all these like, you know, landlords and stuff like that, right? The land equals power, right? And so when you don't have any land, you don't got no power, right? So how can we be sovereign people on land that we do not control. And, um, you know, and, and obviously historically, we, we know um, what has happened to our people, New African and Black people um, on this so-called, and on the stolen land, right? Because this land was stolen. And we also see that indigenous tribes um, are continuously fighting for land, um, especially through the, like, you know, when we see these pipelines and, you know, um, access, you know, to, to clean water. Um, access to to food, um, being able to grow our own food, have our own resources to to survive, right? And so, like land is extremely important. You have to even think about geography and like you know where things are located and how people are located within the land. And you have your you know your large cities, and we see within our large cities um, you know gentrification, um, and then we have our small rural um, areas who um, typically. Are where we we see our prisons, and a lot of times we see where how the resources are manipulated, um, and, and through the system where you have you know majority of your um, you know your African and Indigenous people that are not located within these rural areas, with the exception of being within the prisons. And I think it's all of, all of that stuff is very important. Um, and so when I think about sovereignty, I think about you know us as people you know, controlling our own, um, our own destinies. And I think that, you know, we need to acquire land to do that. Um, We need to do that collectively. Um, And there's a lot of um, examples um, that you see, I think, uh, recently, I saw something about um, uh, a group of people who decided to create their own city in Atlanta, and while I think those efforts are great, and I and I love the idea of everything and all the work and effort that they did to put into that, my only my only beef with that is like, okay, they're still integrationists because uh, they still believe in contributing to the county and then the you know the local politics, and obviously that's still the agenda of um, our oppressor, and so like with voting and and just the same, and you know. Many might argue with me that, you know, voting is, you know, an important part of, you know, our our civil liberties and all that stuff. But um, as we see, um, you know, land is is controlled by uh, those in power, and they utilize these tools like voting uh, to continue to further uh, deepen, to further our captivity, um, to further our oppression, to further uh, ways that we remain in servitude uh, to this empire, and um, and that's that's domestic. That you know, I'm just t- touching on domestic issues. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we also see the land globally, especially when it comes to voting. When
0: we think about every time we're voting, we are legitimizing the U.S.'s the U.S. settler colonies' claim to this land, claim that they have dominion over this land so much so that they should be able to operate on a global scale with all the resources involved in it you know what i'm saying like the voting even legitimizes their claim um over other land and i think that's like super important um that you like bring that up that even though yeah it may not be a popular opinion i think that's like those are the discussions that we have to begin to have as colonized people about our engagement in legitimizing the us's uh claim to this land. We, we all, you know, from myself to folks I'm in community with, you know, it's just we have to begin to really deeply interrogate this relationship that we have on all levels in every capacity with the state and start to truly, you know, engage in some radical imagination about how we move forward. Well, that is all for this week on Race Capital. Reminder, Race Capital airs every Wednesday at 10 a.m. on WRIR LP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio. As always, solidarity to those engaged in the struggle, and thank you for listening.